Hi, this is Madria Steven with the Working with Woes podcast. It's been a while since I've recorded. It's been a very tumultuous several months, and I'm probably going to share some of it with you because there has been some pretty awesome closure that I didn't expect, and it came through some unexpected bad situations. Before we get into that, I will carry on with the Shocks of Normalcy series. I had finished off with an interview with Carl and Cecile just about how they came to love someone like me and the impact that it made on their lives. And you can hear kind of the emotions in our voices, and I I do become a very, very big suck when I'm around them. They are my parents, and I love them very much, and it's easy to see that they love me very much as well. So I'm very, very fortunate. So I hope you liked that interview. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a few years and talk about what kind of triggered some art that I make. Now, I came to Lethbridge six years ago because I had learned about this thing called neuroscience, and it was about the brain, and I really, really, really like the brain and learning about people and personalities and development. So I heard Lethbridge had a really good neuroscience program. So I decided to kind of pick up because it was time for a change in my personal life anyway. So I picked up a little bit suddenly and I moved to Lethbridge because I got in right away. Now in this neuroscience um, program at the time, this was the last year before they um, they made it so you had to take, you know, your th- first year level classes and your second years before you could get into the third and fourth year classes. So in my first year, my first semester, I was taking, you know, second and third level classes. And in my second semester, first year, I was taking 4,000 level classes and I loved it. I learned a lot about memory and development and I remember one of the the first things I heard um, from Brian Kolb was that, you know, memories are like water. They run the same path downhill. You know, he was talking about the brain, how we learn and remember things. And things remembered are things learnt because it's repeated in the same ways. Brian was one instructor and there was another instructor as well. And I'm not sure if he's okay with his name. So we'll just call him instructor two. Anyways, they said in class, in their different ways and pertaining to their different class information, they talked about neural development and critical development periods, which I have mentioned in some of my previous podcasts. So basically, this just narrowed down the ages of certain uh, synaptic prunings that happened at certain ages and when the neocortex, the outer layer of your brain, when that develops and your executive function, which happens in the frontal lobes, which is basically your forehead, um, when that develops and all of that. And in the one class, there was talk about some orphans that were put into an orphanage for about two months of their life or two years, and they were not treated very well. And there was about 20 you know, little kids and little babies to one caregiver. So the care was less than adequate. Anyway, and the studies on these orphans lifelong, even from that short two years of life, showed that they had negative lifelong impacts just from the first two years. I should clarify 
that the lack of care that was given was basic negligence. So there was some food deprivation. There was not really any personal interaction or communication or conversation or that give and receive, give and take kind of feedback that kids develop. There was probably lack of hygiene and lack of sensory stimulation. These kids were followed lifelong and they had troubles in their development, in their social interactions and all of that, even if they were adopted into good families after those two years. So one of the instructors had said, people like that have nothing. They have broken relationships. They don't do well in life. They have nothing. And I remember being shocked. And I was shocked because I was like, but that's only two years. And that's not even that bad. I can't say it wasn't that bad, but you know, like they weren't alone. They weren't shot away. They were still people, still kids. They were just too many of them for one caregiver. So I was pretty shocked. And so that phrase, they have nothing. People like that don't do well in life. They have nothing. It really bothered me, really, really bothered me. So I started making these digital art pieces, take a photo of something, you know, nature or a house or something I drew or I don't know. And I would just combine it with another photo and then put some sort of effect on it. And I, I had to express these things. Sometimes they have writing on them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come associated with a different poem. So I did make an artist page on Facebook, and it's just my name, Madria, M-A-D-R-I-A, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N. And I post these digital art pieces on there because I needed some way to save them without using up my phone space. I made 560 of these digital art pieces in one year, and that was the turn of 2016 into 2017. So this was actually my second year in Lethbridge in the Neuro program. Yeah, I started expressing things that I learned, things that I observed, things that I, I heard someone say, and I wanted to remember that for later. And it was things that I couldn't quite express into music because I shut music down because part of my exodus from Saskatchewan into Lethbridge was some hurts and stuff like that. And I used to do a lot of music there. And I guess I just kind of shut that part away for a while. Anyway, so I am a, a visual artist as well. And it just came out. It just kept coming out. So 560 pieces in one year. And it really did the job. <laughs> it just got me thinking. And sometimes I look back on them and I just want to hug myself because I, I feel that pain. And sometimes they pertain to other things too, not just me, but something that someone else is going through or that I can empathize with or that I really feel for them. Or it's just things that I've learned in life. Like it's just very, very broad. Anyway, so, and I was like shocked and I just didn't know how severe my situation was my entire childhood until I was in class learning about the brain as an adult. It was a hard pill to swallow, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> And then to top it off, there was another class 
And the instructor was talking about learning and memory and different brain structures involved in that, like the limbic system and the the amygdala and all these things. And again, I was hit with that. People have nothing. These people have nothing. If you don't learn certain ways as a child, you you don't do well in life and you have nothing. And I remember sitting in that class as well. And I was just like, I feel screwed before I can even try to do things right. Something within me was like, this isn't true. I have something more than nothing. I just don't know what that is yet. So I actually spoke to each professor outside of class. Usually I went with a friend or something. And I said, in class, you said these kids in these orphanages that had this troublesome upbringing for the first two years of their life that they have nothing but my story is much worse and for much longer and I have something more than nothing I just don't know what it is yet and both of them seemed kind of taken aback they were like what (laughs) I remember the one professor his mouth kind of opened a bit and he just looked and he's like but you're like the top of my class because I was I had an A in the class so I was among the top And um, he seemed really surprised. Anyways, both professors were very surprised because I don't look broken. I don't sound broken. Well, I didn't in class anyway. I'm sure I do to some of my friends or have at some point. (laughs) But to them, you know, they didn't have anything but the impression of this alive looking student paying attention in the back of the classroom with her little friends. So... How could they know that somebody like me was sitting in the class? It just goes to show that you never know who is walking down the hallway. You never know who you're talking to. Don't judge a book by its cover. Brian, actually, I was so impressed with him because it wasn't a long conversation, but it was favorable. And then of his own accord, the next week, he actually revised what he said in class to the class because I think he did some thinking and he was like, yeah, I, I shouldn't have said that. And so he revised it and he said, you know, I do know people who have succeeded against the odds. And he shared a couple of stories in that regard. And I, I noted that as well because that was pretty sweet that he did that. And then both professors actually reached out and invited me to work in their labs And at first I declined because I had no idea who they were, but somebody else whose lab I was in in the psych department was like, you did what? Do you even know who Brian is? People fight to work with him internationally. So I went simpering back and I was like, hey, uh, can I do an independent study with you or something? And so I did a couple of independent studies with Brian and then I worked in the lab of the other professor who was also very kind about it like he had no idea he was just so taken aback along this time as well I went to visit my friend in Ontario who was going through a divorce and she was just expressing some heartache and I just felt really bad for her so I took off during our spring break or our reading week or whatever it is I call it leaving week because I was left (laughs) and On the way there, I just had a paper and a pen, and it was maybe a four-hour flight, and I started writing. I knew something was different about me pertaining to my development, so I thought about it, and I was like, okay, what brain structures would be different, and why? And I wrote it all out, 
And I even drew little pictures and everything. So the amygdala is kind of in charge of the fear response, fight and flight. I figured in my brain, that's probably a little bigger because it's used to being so highly activated since I was born, really. And then there's other things that would be different, like in your neocortex. So when people think of the picture of the brain, you know, and they see all these little bumps and dips and stuff, that's your neocortex. Um, sulci and your gyrus and mine are probably spaced differently which do actually impact a person's cognitive abilities there's a lot of internal structures that might be different as well the pineal gland the amygdala the thalamus the limbic cortex those are all in the inside of the brain the the dorsal lateral striatum dorsal medial striatum those have to do with memory and learning hormonal regulation, thermal regulation, memory, navigation, things like that. And I think that mine are going to be perhaps exaggerated in some areas and under-exaggerated in other areas due to the severe upbringing that I had. And I also think that the sulci, which are the dips, and the gyrus, which are the bumps in the outer layer of the brain that we all picture when we say the word brain, that's also the neocortex. Um, those create borders between lobes, and then it's also the cortex development, and they pertain to emotional regulation and decision making. I think that the spacing, the different spacing, and also the different shapes of the frontal lobes will sort of lead to overreactions and impulsive decisions. So I know this about myself, and I'm able to work around it because I have the education and I've taken steps and I have some pro-social experiences which counteract the trauma, but a lot of people don't have it. And I think in one of my previous podcasts, I said something about some people seem to just make these sucky decisions without knowing how to be different. And I honestly think there's a biological factor because if they have severe trauma like I had and such neural developments like I probably do have, but I can't prove it because I can't get the MRI images that I want to compare my brain to others um, who are like me or not like me. I think that that is also why people who have been through trauma tend to overreact because their amygdala is bigger. Their pineal gland is shaped differently. Their thalamus is different. And also the central nervous system tends to be active all the time. There's just constant release of that corticosteroids, um, cortisol in your brain that says, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. When you're stressed, you don't eat. You can't sleep because you're always preparing for flight. You're preparing to run away or to fight till the death. Um, I'm a fleer, not a fighter. <laughs> but some people are fighters. So I guess I'm learning as an adult how to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So now I'm realizing in the nursing program, for instance, when I get stressed when I'm on the unit, it's probably because I'm hungry. So I go interrupt that overactive central nervous system activation by eating something. And it does help. It's really remarkable. 
because I can sort of relearn emotional regulation, this won't necessarily change the structures of my brain at this late age, but what it does do is build new networks that overwrite the things that I had learned through my development. So in a way, I'm redeveloping my own brain. I am my plastic surgeon because I am changing my brain with better habits and better nutrition and better sleep. And just the awareness of this alone is amazing because it has lasting impacts on the rest of my life. So I'm also learning about balance. Like I have balance issues. As a kid, I was hit quite frequently. So I complain of ear pain. And I wonder if that actually impacted the development of my cerebellum, which has to do with balance. And also my frontal lobes are probably smaller or different. And some density in certain areas are probably different because my brain was not even fed for the first 16 years of my life. I didn't even have proper nutrition. So of course my brain is going to be different. I didn't have proper hydration. I didn't have tactile stimulation. I didn't have love. I didn't even have shelter. So my brain's going to be different. And at the time, I tried talking about it with some of my friends who were also among the top of the class. And they came from very pro-social upbringings. Some of them had like some hardships, like the parents were divorced. And and one of them was extremely, extremely, extremely pro-social all the way. Like family's pretty cool unit. One of them had really strong sibling rivalry. But none of them really had abuse or severe deprivations of any kind. So I was trying to say, I think my brain is different. I want to get an MRI of my brain because I have an idea of what structures are different in my brain than the average person. And they were like, no, you're no different. Like, you're no different. You're getting the same marks we get. You're no different. And they were kind of like sloughing it off and maybe a little bit condescending. And I did have a few of them say a few maybe negative things, but I think it came from lack of understanding rather than anything else. So anyway, so I wrote all these things out on this paper on this flight to visit my friend. And when I got back, I showed it to Brian and he looked a little taken aback. He went quiet for a second and I was like, oh, (laughs) but he actually said, this is PhD level research. And I thought, research? I didn't even have my textbook with me. Like, I just thought about it. So he was on board for my little project to compare brain structures and get MRIs and things like that. And he brought his colleague, who he mentions in his interview, Robin Gibb. She was on board, and I had a few others that were really on board. And I mean, like, really on board. They were giving me their cell phone numbers. I didn't really text them, but we talked every time I passed them in the CCBN. And there were a lot of politics around the MRI machines that had to do with the academic disappointment of this project not being able to get launched, which was extremely disappointing because we all knew it could have turned into something publishable and it could have really led to some great insight from someone who has been on the traumatic side of things. That was extremely disappointing. So I got to learn about, you know, all these big people offering work in my lab. I will do this project with you. And then it all fell through. That was extremely disappointing. And it was out of my hands. And 
you know, there's not much I could have really done about it. It just didn't work. Anyways, I learned about the severity of my upbringing and it, it hurt. Like my chest physically hurt. It still does to a lesser degree when I think about it because I can't do anything about it. I wanted somebody to care, like to be like, hey, I really wronged you and I'm so sorry. I didn't want excuses because people dish those out left, right and center, myself included. We're all guilty. But I just wanted somebody to care enough beyond feeling bad from a distance. I wanted somebody to acknowledge that they were wrong and to mean it when they said sorry. But that never came. So I got the files from social services and I'd had them for a while. I read them all front to back from birth to when it was closed when I was 16 or whatever. And yeah, it was pretty awful. (laughs) I wanted to know why was I put in care? What was the founding reason when I was seven? And I guess the, the repeating quote from my biological mother is that she hated me. That's it. So that was pretty hurtful, but I guess it couldn't be altogether surprising because it's not like her actions or words were ever truly loving towards me. I got angry because I realized the extreme injustices that I had no control over. I was born into it and it sucks. It really freaking sucks, especially when everyone I know You know, they come from this secure background with play and freedom. They could go outside. They could have ice cream whenever they wanted. They had food. They had a winter jacket. Like, it's just all these things that just the basics. They had hugs that were safe. They had light. They had windows. You know, they had a door that opened and closed. They could use the bathroom whenever they wanted. I don't know. It just, it still impacts me. But... I got angry and I looked into whether or not I could charge social services and I talked to some lawyers and they said, yeah, social services shows blatant negligence. Like I was seven and my brother and I were put into the same foster place for six months or so. And yeah, so at the age of seven, I was faced with a decision. Do I stay or do I go back? And I chose to visit for weekends for like three months before making my decision because I just didn't know. And that's when I was played by my biological mother and turned essentially against my brother without meaning to. Um, Because she would say, oh, show him what you got. Oh, tell him about how much fun you had. And I would because I was seven. Anyway, people wrote to social services and they said, don't send her back. Don't let her go back there. We fear there's ritual abuse. We fear she'll never have a normal life. We think she'll be held prisoner. She won't be free. And all of these things which came to pass. And that is how social services closed my file from the age of seven to 14. Am I impressed? No, because that is crazy. How do you close a file with notes like that? They sent me back to hell knowing what the consequences could be. So I was angry and I looked into what I could do for justice. And justice is different because you can forgive somebody without the need for revenge and you can seek justice, which is separate than revenge. Revenge is about making someone pay and like, 
kicking them while they're down kind of thing. But justice is actually making things right for both people to actually get closure, permanent closure, so that the issue is no longer present. And I don't want monetary value. I want somebody to care enough to try to make things right. But lawyers wouldn't even touch it. They're like, no way, man. This is the government and it'll drag on for years. And we have seen people put themselves millions of dollars into debt trying to sue social services. So we're not going to touch it. But you do have a case. And if the world was fair, you would win. I was pretty angry. So I even wrote to the prime minister and to my province as well. The prime minister office secretary probably, answered and said, you know, we're sorry this happened. It's a provincial thing. You'll have to write to them. And my province didn't even answer. That just goes to show how much social services actually cares. Because it wasn't like a one-time thing. It carried on for years. And I'm not the only person to be in that boat. Again, even though I was learning all of this stuff, I still didn't realize the severity of my situation. Because it's weird when you've lived through it And it doesn't hit home until it's sort of many things at once. So I was dealing with the friends with the extremely pro-social upbringings and their entire lives. Like they were just so clueless sometimes about pain, how to even be a friend during pain. And I struggled with it until I saw them in moments of their pain. And I was able to relate and try to be supportive That alone was a journey, and it showed kind of the quality of friendships that I developed. So I'm still friends with them. Some of them have moved on, and uh, some of us were in different phases of life. So we don't hang out as much as we used to, but we did hang out, and we had some good times. And when we do hang out, it's still a good time. It's just a lot less frequently, which is too bad. But that's just how it is right now. We're all busy with different things. Which is also kind of cool because it shows that we're all moving on in some direction of our lives. That alone was a big journey. And then to deal with the shock of everything as I went to class every week. And nobody had any idea why I was so impacted. Or even that I was so impacted. But I was. Because how could I not be? It was a wake-up call. And I didn't know what to do. Carl and Cecile were remarkable supports. I remember talking with them for hours in hours each week not 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 each day and um cecile actually was like let's let's make a statement of impact let's do this and she and i built it together she came down and stayed with me for a bit yeah we formed it and i still have it actually because that effort was just um showed her care and i wrote out my impact and she cried she really cried when she read it because she said i was being too nice (laughs) Um, I probably was. I really probably was. Anyway, and then I had some of my friends uh, near and far write some letters of impact as well. But the hardest thing I suppose that worked against me is that I look put together and I sound put together. So because I look fine and I sound fine, even though I say I'm not fine, people don't take that seriously. And that's really, really hard, really hard, especially in moments of crisis. So that's my academic journey. And I got to know Brian because he's so well known. 
everybody clamored to talk to him at the end of each class. I was like, I want to talk to this guy. Like, he talks neuro, and I love this stuff. And I have no idea, because there's no way I'm standing to, like, 90 people in a lineup. Like, there's just no way I'm going to wait that long. Sorry. At the start of one of the classes, he had said that he marks the quizzes himself. So <laughs> and I would write my questions at the bottom of the quiz. And then he would write back a response. It started off as like a very general one or two word answer. And then it started into a sentence. And then it, eventually it was, come see me after class. And I got to bypass the big lineup. And sure enough, I'd walk him down to the CCBN and we would have a conversation while we walked there. Brian, he strikes me as different because I see in him a heart of gold. He is a true humanitarian. He is a really empathetic person and a good teacher because he also talks from experience as well as what he's learned and he's very well educated. So he's not just preaching to the choir, he has walked the walk. And there really is a difference between teachers who talk the talk and who walk the walk. He actually shared some things about his life that made me realize that even if people don't have it so bad, they still suffer, can make a good name for themselves in academia. Because I kind of did come to think, like, everyone who goes to school is just like this pro-social upbringing, blah, blah, blah. And I started to get judgy the other way. Yeah, it was just an interesting journey. I think it was really good. It's too bad that it never amounted to anything. I ended up hopping into the nursing program because I realized the low job prospects with a PhD in neural, and I was just in my undergrad. So I turned around, hurried up, finished it, graduated a little early, picked up some courses that I needed for nursing, and jumped into the after-degree two-year program, which is for RNs. It's four years condensed into two years, and I'm just finishing that up now. It was quite a journey. I will say that was quite a journey, and it was awesome to get to know Brian and some of the other colleagues at the CCBN, not just academically to be able to work with them, but just to be myself. I, I pulled a lot of pranks on people and <laughs> got a lot of really good laughs. I guess in that time, I really liked being myself in those moments. It was awesome. Good times had there. I miss those good days. The shock of normalcy is what I was realizing. Like, normalcy was shocking to me. And it still is, in some ways, strange. And sometimes it's enviable, sometimes it's not. I can see the silver lining of having a background like mine. But it's a battle. It's just a battle. And sometimes it seems like people who come from that kind of background where they've had everything handed to them and stuff like that are less compassionate. That's not to say that trauma generates caring people. It's just an observation that it seems like people with limited life experiences have less empathy and less compassion. But I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying that it seems that way. That is how it comes across from this side of the fence, from my perspective. Anyway, Brian has not had things easy and he has had to overcome some pretty severe obstacles. And part of that is his journey into neuroscience as a youngster himself. And we do talk about that in the upcoming interview. And then I ask him kind of some questions just that came to mind while I had him on Zoom. 
and uh, he took it all in stride. He actually said he prefers it that way because you can just go with the flow. I'm very, very happy that he was on board. And he also became sort of the first academic encourager, I suppose, because I just felt really stupid because my friends would study for hours and hours and hours, and I wouldn't study. I was going to the gym. I was hanging out with friends. I was doing music. I was in a musical or choir and around the city. And <laughs> and sometimes people would get irritated because I thought everybody did that. But they would study very many hours and freak out before tests. And I would just go in and write it, and I would have marks in the ballpark. So sometimes they would not be the nicest. <laughs> anyway, so I, I learned about studying from my friends because I was like, you what? No way. And I tried asking them about it, but it's like they couldn't explain it well or I just didn't understand it. I'm not sure. But I'm not used to studying because quite honestly, I've had so much to deal with in my personal life. And studying has just felt by the wayside, I suppose. I'm not saying this to toot my own horn to be like, oh, they had to study and I didn't. I'm actually saying this because I'm pointing it out as a deficit on my part. Something that should have been common sense and just done a lot because I've been in school a lot is just not even a normal concept for me to grasp. Like I don't really know how to study because I've never been able to freely, like I've had so much garbage to deal with that the average person doesn't. That's why I'm pointing it out. So I actually went to Brian and I was like, I think I have a learning disability. And he's like, why? And I was like, because I don't study. And he's like, I was actually failing in my undergrad. And I was like, what? And so he talked a little bit about that. And he said, yeah, I was actually bored. So he challenged himself and figured out what worked for him. He said, sometimes when you're reading things, you're probably reading at a more advanced level. You need to dumb it down. Like, don't read at a PhD level. Read at an undergrad first year level. So I just read the index and the chapter summaries sometimes when he recommended that. But I also took really good notes in class. So sometimes I just reviewed those. But I'm still trying to figure out how to study with the nursing thing because I withdrew from the program and then I hopped back in after quite some time of not being around nursing or thinking about it. So I'm going to have to study this semester. Anyways, so upcoming interview with Dr. Brian Kolb. Then we'll carry on the Shocks of Normalcy series or I'll finish it off with one more episode after the interview and then we'll shift on to something else. Have a good one.